0: you wouldn't mind taking your Bibles and turning to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 12 to 25. In fact, that's the portion of Scripture that we'll be reading from this morning. But I'd actually like to take us back to verse 11 and start from verse 11 and read through to verse 25. So join with me, please. Mark 11, starting at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he, Jesus, had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following morning, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And in seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, But believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word, actually by the Holy Spirit, speaks to us. And Father, I ask this morning for an extra measure of grace as we work through this passage. Would you bless the hearers? Lord, would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? Would we see your greatness and your majesty and leave this place knowing that we have met with the King of kings and Lord of lords? What a privilege we now have, Lord, to sit with your words in our hands and to consider them, and to apply them to our lives, so that we may be the sons and daughters that you want us to be. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray, amen. Friends, in our we are in our final week of Jesus's life, and as Ben was pointing out in worship this morning last week, Jesus has rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with people Pulling off fig trees and laying them down and laying out cloaks for the donkey to ride on, probably not knowing the significance of what they were doing or the significance of this King of the Jews, Jesus. He rides in to Jerusalem and his first stop is the temple. And that's what we read in verse 11. He goes to the temple, he has a look around, it's afternoon, the sun's going down, so he and the twelve are headed out to Bethany. I wonder, friends, what that evening must have been like for Jesus. Have you ever stopped to think? Did he actually, um, like, talk to the disciples and draw them out and say, hey, what did you notice when we went to the temple? Hey, what did you notice when the people were laying down branches? Did Jesus actually draw them out? Could the disciples actually pick up if Jesus was actually burdened or sad or concerned? What did Jesus do that night when he got to Bethany? Did he talk to the disciples? Or did he take himself away and and go pray and talk to his heavenly father? Did he even sleep that night knowing that tomorrow... He has a plan. This morning, let us consider what he does. I've entitled my message this morning, Sobering Moments with the King, if you're taking notes. And the reason that this passage is sobering is because when we see Jesus, we see him in his majesty. And yet then we see him in complete humility. We see his perfect, holy, righteous justice. And yet then we see this endless, scandalous grace that he gives to others. We see his absolute sovereignty, his rule and his reign. And yet then we also see his submission to his father. Friends. The result of these extremes should not repel us. In fact, they should draw us closer so that we can be amazed at how whole and how complete and how powerful our king is. Watch as the king takes a moment to, instead of satisfying his hunger, he's going to teach his disciples a very powerful message. And my first point this morning is a moment that teaches the disciples. You see, in verses 12 to 14, we have this um, event that takes place where Jesus is actually hungry and he goes over to a, a fig tree. I mean, this These three verses, they kind of grab your attention, do they not? Jesus is cursing a fig tree because there's no fruit on it? Well, yeah, that's what's happening. But there's a reason and a purpose, and that's what I want us to look at. You see, this is one of these unique Markian features. It's called a sandwich, really. We see the cursing of the fig tree in verses 12 and 14. And then in verses 15 to 19, we see this clearing of the temple. And then in verses 20 to 21, we see the fig tree actually is withered. What is going on? And then at the end of this cursing of the fig tree, we have some teachings about spiritual discipline. So coming from Bethany... It's about three kilometers outside of Jerusalem. Jesus spots this fig tree, and he's drawn to it. Now, I am no expert in fig trees. In fact, the the closest I come to a fig tree is in sticky date pudding. So I'm not a fig expert. But yet what I have learned, and I've got a slide here that I think you might be able to see, there are some figs that are on the tree now one is on a there's a fig tree but on the other side you see those little things that are called nodules that are growing off the branch now when a Middle Eastern uh, traveler would travel they would go over to the fig trees and they would look for these little nodules and they would pull them off and eat them now as leaves start coming into um, season Uh, It's kind of a sign that that fig tree is going to be bearing some fruit. But what is confusing here about what Jesus is telling us is he sees a fig tree that's in full leaf and he's drawn to it and he goes over to it. But Mark adds eight words in verse 13 that kind of make this a little bit complicated. He says, for it was not the season for figs. Fig season is actually about five weeks away jesus knows this so what is he doing well what he's doing is really quite significant because jesus is taking a moment to teach his disciples a lesson that they won't forget see back in the old testament times a fig tree is used as a symbol for israel in fact, Jeremiah twenty nine seventeen reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So the fact that this particular fig tree was leafy, and it has no fruit. This is portraying exactly what Jesus is wanting to, is what Jesus is seeing in Jerusalem. Let me ask you, if you've gone to a nursery and you buy a tree, you've planted it and you watch it and you're waiting for fruit to be seen on it, but there is no fruit, what are you going to do? Would you curse it like Jesus has cursed it? You know, some years ago, a remarkable picture was exhibited in London. And as you looked at it from a distance, you seemed to be seeing a monk who had his hands clasped and his head bowed in prayer. But as you went closer to the picture, it wasn't that. It was a monk who had a lemon in his hand, squeezing it into a fruit bowl. It wasn't what it was, what it appeared You see, the point is the fig tree is not doing its appointed job. You see, the tree has become the perfect metaphor for Israel. In fact, it's become the perfect metaphor that reaches beyond Israel and confronts anyone who claims to be God's people. But they bear no fruit. What is the fruit that is actually to be seen in God's people? Well, Galatians 5, and 23 tells us that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I think this passage right here, this verse causes us to pause and consider. The fig tree is a visible a visible parable of israel and now it's asking us a question just because we look to be doing good and just because our leaves may be large and shiny that doesn't mean that the fruit that we're bearing is pleasing to god like the painting from a distance we can look right like the fig tree we may look lushy and and fresh like the temple We can look large and active, but we can't fake fruit with King Jesus. Friends, are you here today recognizing that you're very busy? You're busy serving. You're busy doing. You're busy being involved. But your personal relationship with Jesus is is not really where you want it. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. Because you see, brothers and sisters, we can learn something from this passage. You see, I think what Mark wants us to see here this morning is that only relationship with Jesus produces quality fruit. Let me explain. Let's look now as we go to as Jesus goes to the temple for the second time to a place that's very religiously busy. Busy with tasks, busy with people coming and going, busy with lots of uh, transactions, busy, busy with many areas of service. But notice it doesn't contain spirituality. It's not containing a relationship. It's not flowing out of a relationship. It's flowing out of duty. The second point this morning is a moment that demands our attention Jesus has come to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeon. Mark tells us that Jesus has entered the temple. I've got a picture here for you. This is quite significant because you see when you stepped inside the temple door, The first area that you go to was the court of the Gentiles. I don't know if we have any people who are Jewish in here, but I would imagine there wouldn't be many Jewish people in here. But the Gentile court, that was for people like me, who doesn't have Jewish blood in them. It's the biggest section of the temple. In fact, you had to go through that first to get to the rest of the temple. I want you for a moment to think of Jesus on that day. Think of the sight the day before he comes into Jerusalem with all the fanfare, goes to the temple and looks around. He would have seen the cream of her marble walls. The morning that he's coming in this morning, he would have seen the the gleaming gold of the pillars illuminated from the morning sun. A huge Passover crowd is already flowing up the steps to the great court of the temples. I mean, this area is quite huge. It's about the length of three football fields. It's about the width of 229 meters wide. And business is full swing in that area. It is crowded. People are set up in there to do business. Imagine him watching this all. Great throngs of people coming and going, buying and selling animals at multiple stalls, exchanging foreign currencies at money changers tables. There would have been thousands of people who were flooding into Jerusalem, already bringing tens of thousands of animals to be sacrificed. You know, it's actually Josephus, the church historian, who recorded that in one year, some 255,000 lambs alone were bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple courts. Can you imagine the chaos and the noise and the hollering and the animals bawling and the cows mooing on top of the merchants trading that's going on? What's the big deal? What's the problem? That area outside is for people like us to go to the Passover. And we're supposed to be in that area in prayer and meditation and worship to God. How in the world could you do that with all of that activity? Notice what Jesus does, though. He starts overthrowing the furniture. Remember, this used to be, friends, holy ground for thousands of years. Remember, King Solomon had finished building the temple and had a great prayer of dedication to the glory of God and the glory of God filled the temple. The priests couldn't enter into it. All Israel is gathered around. They're kneeling on the pavement outside as they saw the fire of the glory descend on the temple. 750 years before that, Isaiah, he was mourning the loss of Uzziah. And he has a vision. Do you remember what the vision was? It was a vision of the sovereign Lord, majestically enthroned above him. And his train, the train of his robe, is carpeting the temple. Above the Lord, there were seraphims that were hovered. They're beating they're flying their wings are beating the air with the other set of wings they're covering their eyes and their feet because they realize that they are in the presence of perfect holiness isaiah watched and he heard as the angels are singing holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come the whole earth is filled of his glory is full of his glory a church Take Isaiah 6 and have a time of meditation. This is the place right now, though, in our passage where all of this is unfolding. This is still officially called a holy place. And yet, all of this sacrilegious practice is taking place before Jesus' eyes. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. It is God in the flesh. This is all unfolding before his, wonder, his, his eyes. No wonder one of the disciples recalled Jesus saying that zeal for your house will consume me. In the Greek, this zeal idea is that it's going to eat me up. That is how important the house of God is. The Hebrew kind of imagery is it's burning in a flame. It's like burning on the inside of you. That's how important the temple is. Let me ask you. Have you ever overturned a table? It's not a passive act, really. In fact, it's quite a a violent act. Not only is Jesus overturning tables and chairs. He's halting traffic because he doesn't want the people coming through with their goods. Imagine, I imagine, we don't have this in this passage of Scripture right here, right now, but I imagine some of the religious leaders kind of freaking out. What's he doing? Why, Why is he doing that? But what we hear here, what we see next that jesus does is he's saying is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations before you pass over this all the nations quickly this all the nations has gentiles all people outside of the jews it has us in mind all nations this temple shall be a place of prayer for all nations Isaiah 56, 7 is what um, Jesus is quoting here. This would have amazed those people who are hearing Jesus speak like this. Why? Why would people be intrigued by what Jesus is saying? Because what we probably don't realize is that if you're not a Jew, you realize how significant that temple is because you're not able to go into it. And the Jews would quickly remind you of their place. But those that are listening to what Jesus is saying, they are amazed. And here is why they are amazed. Because it was popularly believed that when the Messiah came, he would purge the temple of the foreigners. He would purge the temple of those Gentiles, those unwashed Gentiles. But that is not what's happening now. Here, Jesus is clearing the temple for the Gentiles. He's acting as their advocate. I think I've shared with you before that I had the privilege of traveling to Israel and part of our tour included a meal with with a Jewish family. And I remember us going into this home and it was quite sobering to be in their midst and they provided a lovely meal for us and no questions were off limits. But one of the things that so amazed me was the actual pride Uh, Jews have for their nationality. I mean, I definitely felt like a substandard in their midst, but nothing like the Gentiles of this day would have felt. See, what Jesus is doing is quite significant and we don't want to miss it. Jesus right now is challenging the sacrificial system and saying the Gentiles, the pagan, the the um, unwashed Gentile. They are now going to have direct access to God. This is amazing teaching. These folk know the history of the tabernacle and the temple. They know of the elite privileges that the Jews have full access it's like the, 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 you know, the um, full access to the palace at Buckingham. It's kind of like the, the backstage pass, it, pass to a major comp, uh, concert that, of somebody that you really, really idolize. They are now going to have full access. But that is not the way it is right now. It's fairly impossible to concentrate in the temple in the court of the Gentiles to pray and to worship God. You see, this epic national sin against God and the lost people of the world is doubly serious. Serious, And the reason it's doubly serious is because this is Passover time. It's the time when the, when the heart of Jewish religion was especially to be revealed. But what Jesus says is instead... You've made it. You've perverted it into a den of robbers. does isn't necessarily that the temple was only used to be robbing people. But what it means is, the idea is is that you're housing robbers. You're shielding them. It's a shelter for them. And you're protecting their wayward practice of cheating those who had come to make sacrifices. You see, what is basically happening is the high priests have perverted temple worship into a monetary gain for themselves. Further to that. There's a spiritual robbery that is taking place for the Gentiles and in fact, for anyone who is seeking worship. What they're seeing is a perverted image of what true worship really is to be. Dear brothers and sisters, God's word tells us our corporate worship is important. For throughout scripture, it's peppered about the importance of corporate gatherings. In fact, when we hear the word of God read our hearts, it should grab our attention. We should be attempting to absorb every single word that's coming from God's word. And when we pray, we shouldn't be praying passively, but actively actively. Listening to prayers, praying along silently with verbal amens and yes, lords and hallelujahs. But let me ask you, friend. When a seeking heart enters our church or our home or our lives. May what we do say that God is alive that God is holy, that God is loving. May our worship and our service say to others that we love him with all of our hearts. Oh, Friends, it's so easy to seem worshipful and holy, and yet we are easily disrupted and we're easily distracted as if we are in the court of the Gentiles at Passover time. You see, what's happened in these verses 15 to 19, there are two effects from what has taken place with Jesus clearing the temple, and I think it's important to highlight those because you see what has happened by Jesus gaining attention in this way is he's actually done two things. The first thing that has happened, the first effect that has happened, is he sealed his re, um, his rejection by the religious leaders. You see, the chief priests and the scribes—they're now going to seek to destroy him. We're told. Why? Because the actions of Jesus is an attack on their vested interests. Their bank accounts are going to lessen. Their, people are no longer going to be coming to the temple. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they get this. They get what's, good, what's being done, what's being communicated. So they re- react with, a hostile, um, with hostility, excuse me. And next Sunday, we're going to see that these these leaders are going to go over to Jesus and say, Hey, by what authority are you doing this? What gives you the right to stand up and say that this isn't right? Whose authority are you acting on? One commentarian writes that because of Jesus's action, from the human point of view, it was the cleansing of the temple, which more than any other act precipitated Jesus's death. He had previously aroused the deadly antagonism of the Pharisees and the Herodians in Galilee. But it was the Sadducees, the priestly aristocrats, who actually encompassed his death. You see, Jesus has attacked their vested interests. But here's the thing. They feared him. They actually stood in fear of him. And Jesus, as we will see as we go throughout Mark... Will be put to death by them. But that was one effect. The second effect that happened of Jesus overturning the tables and clearing out the temple is that he captured the hearts of people. Verse 18 tells us that there are actually two crowds here there's the crowd who heard and sought to plotter, plot his murder, excuse me, and then there was a crowd who heard and was astonished at his teaching. This word astonished here takes us back to chapter 1, verse 22, where Jesus has healed the demoniac in Capernaum. The crowd were so amazed in chapter 1 by Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' teaching is having the same effect in Jerusalem that it had in Galilee. His teaching never loses its freshness or its power. But friends, now at the end of verse 18, we come to the close of day two. Day two is now over. And as was the practice when the sun had set, Jesus and his disciples went back to Bethany. We're not sure why he didn't stay in Jerusalem, but they moved back to Bethany to stay the night. It's been a long day and a lot has happened, but we have this snippet of what has happened. But let's not miss the moment that demands our attention. You see, Jesus cleared the temple for the Gentiles. That means Jesus is removing the old sacrificial system that was in place. And now the Gentiles, the pagan, the unwashed, can now go directly to God in prayer. Remember, Mark's writing to a Gentile audience. He's wanting them to bottom out on who this man is and what he's done He is just. He is gracious. What are you going to do with him? So we have a moment that teaches the disciples. We have a moment that demands attention. And now we look at a moment that calls for action. Point three, a moment that calls for action And verse 20, we see that as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Same beginning of day two is now day three. Peter remembers what Jesus said Just as it and it's now come to pass. But remember, Peter is most likely passing this information on to Mark, who's pinning this letter many years later. But I want you to notice something about this withering. You you see, because Peter goes, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. That takes you back to Mark chapter four, where we're very introduced to the parable of the sowers. We learned that the seeds that sprouted quickly they had no depth of soil and they withered away because they had no roots. <clears throat> and here in Mark, the clearing of the temple, it's not a restoration project, but more—it's it, it, not a restoration project, but more of a clearing out project. Things are going to be undone. So, like the fig tree, its function is withered from the roots. This must have been for Peter, um, who's who's, um, relaying this to Mark, a real sense of connection. For this is the only gospel account to put these things together in this way. You see, we're told in Mark chapter 14 as he's writing this letter that Jesus is saying, my body is going to be broken. The disciples don't get that. We're told in chapter 10 that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. They don't get that. In chapter 14, we're told that his body will be raised anew in three days. It's going to be raised as a temple, not made with human hands. The disciples aren't getting that. In chapter 15, we're told at the moment of his death that the curtain that divides the Holy of Holies from the court of Israel is going to be torn in two Mark is now writing this to us and they're remembering everything that Jesus said. And now they're beginning to see the significance of it all. These events that have taken place, these events that they've seen with their very own eyes, signify something. They signify that the temple is not the means to approach God. The temple is fundamentally from the roots replaced by Jesus as the center of Israel. It's incredible. But what is so striking about this is Jesus doesn't explain that to Peter right here, right now. What does he do? He calls them to action. He says to Peter after Peter said, look. You, you, you told this tree that it should not be anymore and it's withered to its roots. And Jesus answered him and said, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes in what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In front of us now, we have the conclusion of the fig tree. We have the conclusion of the temple episode. And then we have this call to faith, this call to prayer, this call to forgiveness But be not deceived. This is not a call to duty necessarily. This is a call to faith. And this is a call to faith in Jesus, not the temple. Jesus is to be our object of faith, not the temple. This isn't a a Jesus and me thing now, because in verses 22 and 24 and 25, it's all in the plural. It's not the singular You see, prayer is something that is to be done as a community of disciples together. So the temple, that's not where you're going to go to me. Find me. It's going to be on me. But when you gather together, you pray together. And together as a community, we pray. And together as a community, we exercise faith see, faith is the opposite of fear we learn in Mark 4.40 or 5.36 or 6.50. It's the choice to trust in Jesus despite everything else. It's the choice to expect from him what cannot be expected from anything else in the world. You know, this moving mountains, it's it's kind of like cursing the fig tree. I mean, imagine, you know, Brendan and Dave praying that mountains would just pick up and move and... uh, The imagery there is we're taking problems. We're taking situations before the Lord and we're believing that they will be moved. This idea of faith and prayer, there's a connection between faith and prayer. True prayer is taking our, our request to God in faith. Faith believes enough to ask God that he will do that. But also knowing that we, uh, that God will bring about what his will is on earth as it is in heaven. Faith is more certain of God's reliability than human inabilities and limitations. Faith and prayer is then brought up with forgiveness. Forgive, um, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against some anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. How can we go to our heavenly father if we ourselves were not first forgiven? We have been recipients of God's incredible forgiveness. In prayer, not only is faith required, but also Forgiveness. So, when we pray, forgiveness must be granted to others in the same way that God has forgiven us. I love this quote from William Barclay, and he writes this There is one eternal principle which will be valid as long as the world lasts. The principle is forgiveness is a costly thing. Human forgiveness is costly. A son or a daughter may go wrong, a father or a mother may forgive, but that forgiveness has brought tears. There was a price of a broken heart to pay. Divine forgiveness is costly. God is love, but God is holiness. God, least of all, can break the great moral laws on which the universe is built. Sin must have its punishment, or the very structure of life disintegrates. And God alone can pay the terrible price that is necessary before men can be forgiven. Forgiveness is never a case of saying, it's all right, it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is the most costly thing in the world. What Jesus is doing here is he is on his way to paying a price so that we could be in relationship with him. The cursing of the fig tree is one of the most difficult stories in the Gospels why because it represents a destructive use of supernatural power but what is the purpose of cursing a barren fig tree the reason jesus cursed the fruitless fig tree was for a teaching moment he's using it to make a point he's using it as a visual aid in actuality this tree is quite honored It'd be one of the most useful trees that has ever been. How? Because this tree has been a teaching device for which thousands have come to God. So for one soul to have been made to consider his life through this tree, then this tree has not withered in vain. What does this mean for us? This passage mean for us personally? You see, Mark is writing to folks like us. Gentiles. What are we going to do? Are we going to call him our king? Will we start submitting to him as king and and follow him? It's quite sobering when you think of the lesson that Jesus is teaching the disciples. What if we have called him our, our king? We must be sobered by the fact that fruit is going to be inspected. Our relationship with Jesus produces quality fruit. This is not a call to work. And we must examine fruit in light of the gospel. Because, dear friends, one of the things that I am prone to is legalism. Just tell me what I've got to do to get into heaven. Just tell me what needs to be done. What do I need to do? How many times do I need to be at church? How many times do I need to read my Bible? How many times do I have to serve? What's going to get me in? That's not what this is about. That's what the temple was about. Rules and regulations. And What's sobering, friends, is it's possible to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible to be saved by his love and still have a hard heart. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, I want grace. I want, I want to be a recipient of his unending grace. And I can quickly rush to grace. And I want to rush to grace, my friends. But if there are areas of sin in our life, if there are areas where fruit that is supposed to be being produced, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control... I want grace and I have grace. It's freely given to me. But I must understand my heart can grow hard when it comes to developing fruit. My heart is prone to wander. My heart is prone to leave the God that I love and to worship me and make things comfortable for me. But God as my king and my Lord calls me to be different. I'm supposed to be a reflection of him. When people come into my home, people come into our church, are they seeing someone who truly loves God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind? Friends, Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that we cannot forsake the meeting of gathering together instead of trying to um, let me just turn there for you. Hebrews chapter 3. Thank you. I'm actually in verse 5. I mean, chapter 5 for some reason. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Paul Tripp, in his New Morning Mercies devotional, says this, Be comforted if you hear his voice. You serve a dissatisfied redeemer who will not turn away from his work of grace. Even when you fail to esteem it and to work to resist it with patient grace. Once more, he calls you to listen. What is he saying to you this morning, my friends? What is the savior saying to you this morning? I think Mark would want us to hear him say this. Only relationship with Jesus produces genuine fruit. Can I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for making your way into Jerusalem Thank you for this final week that we are reading about here in the gospel of Mark that shows us the significance of what you are doing. Lord, thank you that we are, it's being made possible for us to be in a relationship with you. Lord, thank you so much that I have the privilege to enter into your presence with boldness and with confidence. Lord, please help me, help us as a church to be men and women who aren't distracted when we come into, um, um, to come into church. Lord, through the week, help us not to be distracted in our busyness of serving and doing. And, but Lord, help us to remember who we are, whose we are, and what you have done that we might have life. Father, For those of us who are prone to evaluate fruit without the gospel, Lord, would you protect us? But Lord, would you help us to grow in the areas of the fruit of the Spirit? Would you make us a more loving, kind, gracious, self-controlled church? Lord, have your way with us, I ask. And Lord, as we grow in our relationship with you. Would that fruit be pleasing in your sight? Not because of us, but because of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.